Alright, welcome back. What? I think this is... I don't know. I think I have it listed as episode 7 since it's been actually back to Peace, Love, and Meat feed. But <laughs> it's episode 40, 30-something. I don't know. We've done a lot. Yeah, it's, that's uh, all that matters. <laughs> it's as confusing as the algorithms are. You know, we got... This <laughs> right. is number 73 of 8, and this is number 30 on the uh, Ross and Brandon show, but 7 on the piece. Yeah. Something like that. There's a... There's yeah. a <laughs> yeah. There's an algorithm for it, so, but um, so many of them. How you doing, man? Doing good. Yeah. Uh, the last the last week or so was uh, a lot different than than most weeks. Was out of town a lot. We had uh, passing of a of a close family friend, so we were out of town for his funeral. And I texted you about it because it was actually, uh, it was it was pretty cool. We had um, they had it at the high school. Mm-hmm. It was my best friend's dad. And it's, he's literally like the, the total example of what you would consider like the staple in a small farm town mm-hmm. kind of guy. Yeah. Like he's been involved in everything and every extracurricular. He was a teacher and a coach for 30 plus, 35 plus years. And then was doing all these other things for the community and farming and but part of every organization. And uh, we had the thing at the high school, had a service at the high school. And I texted you, I said, I bet there was easy 500 people there mm-hmm. for for him, which was, which was awesome. So, uh, just, a you know, heavy and emotional and everything kind of weak. Cause he was, you know, really kind of like a second dad, uh, to me mm-hmm. and my sister. And so we were just, you know, in the, in the middle of remembering and doing all of the, the stuff that goes along with that week. But I was a little out of normal communication and I took a handful of days, you know, really kind of off. So got back on Sunday and, came back and trying to catch back up with everything this week but man it's it was cool like it's those things are obviously emotional and sad but like I told you it was really kind of it was really kind of special to have that large of the community come back I mean like and especially I've been you know when when grandparents and and older populations pass away Mm -hmm. you I've noticed you tend to see not that type. And I don't know if I even mean anything necessarily by it, but you know, I don't usually see giant services for elderly people. Right. Because by that point, you know, it's, it's family and they've got maybe if, if it's large, it's because they've got large families and that kind of stuff. But you know, he was like a staple of the entire town for literally 70 plus years. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty cool to be back and then see literally every person I've ever known in my life on Saturday, yeah. <laughs> on Saturday when everybody came back into town, which was pretty cool. So lots of, lots of good catching up and remembering and stuff, but do you think that back at it now, do you think that's, um, that's something that I think in modern times is being missed a little bit is the, um, not the return home necessarily, but like in the event of death, you know, it used to be day long. I don't even want to call them celebrations, but celebrations really. Yeah. Um, yep. Uh, and stories were told of the of the, the deceased and songs yep. were sung and wine was drunk and, you know, people mm-hmm. were together and, you know, I, I was reading some of the old, um, uh, it's Neil Gaiman, uh, the Norse, Norse tales, Norse gods. Oh, okay. Yeah. And talking just about some of the process of death and the things in the old times and the way that people would, would really celebrate when someone passed. And now I am like you, I've witnessed, you know, a funeral after funeral where 
you see these elderly people and it's a small 20, 30 people, usually their church group, you know, something like yep. that. But yep. to kind of transcend that to somebody like this, or when you were talking, it reminded me of Judd Logan, you know, the coach at yep. Ashland. He was a big uh, impact yep. on Burt Sornex, a U.S. Olympic thrower, just a, a monolith in a community, really, like somebody that transcends age, time, whatever. They just impact so many people yeah. positively. But for you, you know, was the, I guess what I'm getting at is, was the, the weight of the death, does it remain more than going back and seeing those people and remembering him? Mm. Like, do you leave there with more of a positive than you went with a negative? Oh, for sure. And I think a lot of it too is the, like when you show up, because some of the guys were like guys that I played football with in high school where he was one of the, one of our coaches, mm. you know, he was one of our coaches from the time that I was five years old. And, uh, and so some of those guys you come back, I haven't seen in 14 years, 13 years since I graduated high school. Yeah. So it was like, there's that whole other wave of like, it's, it's a time passing type of motion mm. where you're like, Oh my gosh, it's almost been like half our lives now since I've seen you again. Yeah. And like for this to be the reason that we see each other again, like that's kind of the old thing is like, you see f f the only time you really ever see uh, a lot of family or, or like distant friends is weddings and funerals, Yeah, you know, like that's, and that's it. So I think part of that is yes, there was obviously the, the really intense sadness, mm. but then you get to share that, and and have those reconnections of guys I like friends I haven't seen literally in 15 years almost. Mm -hmm. And so like like you said, we sat around and we told old football stories, a bunch of our every coach that's ever gone through the high school was there. <laughs> every teacher that's ever been through the high school was there. And so like it was literally just a, a giant it, it was bigger than even like a class reunion because it was every class oh, yeah. reunion, yeah. <laughs> you know, for 40 years, there was people from every class that were there. And so it was, you, you go back and you start telling the stories and, and my buddy that was, was his dad was, uh, it was really good. I think for him to be around all of us again from, because you know, everybody goes off their separate ways. And a lot of us, I'm the closest two hours away mm -hmm. <clears throat> a lot of those guys and I see we we see each other quite frequently still but yeah it definitely does I think add to the coming away from it feeling better and I think that's the point yeah like in those in those times surrounding yourself with friends and family oftentimes ones that you haven't seen for so long it helps to not soften anything but kind of cast a little bit of a net of support mm -hmm. around around everybody not just like the people that are the most directly affected by it right like yeah everybody needs each other in some form of the word and so a lot of people like you said when in in old times where the death was like it happened but then there was like sometimes like three or four days of mm -hmm. of celebration and everybody getting back together and having big feasts and telling stories and all these sort of you know, rituals or whatever we, you know, ours was pretty much a day and a half. Cause we got into a couple, bunch of us got into town the night before we get together the night before and are hanging out and telling stories and doing all that kind of stuff. And then the next day with the service and then there was food and then there was more hanging out. And I mean, it was really kind of like something like what you're talking about. And I think that that sort of environment is healing mm -hmm. very much. So, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, um, I guess the reason I ask is, 
a couple of deaths, really three, impacted the the course of my life. Have you had people very, very close to you family-wise that have passed on already? Well, I've had uh, most of, I've got one grandparent left. Mm. So grandparents, yes. Um, I've had, yeah, there's been a couple of friends that have gone, you know, tragically in tragic ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two of them, I would say, were, were... we're in pretty close circles. So, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I, I really had a, a different context with death when I was younger. Uh, when I was born, my great, great grandmother was still alive and, wow. and we called her mom Bess. Uh, that was kind of her name, <laughs> but, and, and my great grandparents were alive on both sides. Um, still. Okay. So when I, wow. you know, when I grew up, you know, it was death was, relegated to the extremely old and um it was right around i don't know 2007 2008 i'd lost friends i'd lost people that were like peripheral to family or like my great great grandmother who was extremely old but here i am you know 25 six ish years old and still the majority of my family is alive you know and my my uh my mom's family so my grandfather's brother passed away from a heart attack and this story is going to get a little murky here but it, he he passed away from a heart attack um i was kind of given the responsibility as the the man of the family on this side to tell my granny that he passed away and i remember walking in the house and she looked at me and she said lord honey i haven't seen you in a month of sundays and that's what she'd always say you know she it was mm-hmm. just if it had been two days or six months, she hadn't seen you enough, you know? <laughs> so yeah. I walked in and, uh, I sat down with her and she knew something was wrong. Cause she always had a cross necklace, you know, and she would, mm-hmm. when she'd get nervous, she'd kind of fret with it at, at her shirt collar. Mm-hmm. And when I came in, I must've brought a dark cloud with me. Cause she knew as soon as she said that she started mm-hmm. fretting with her necklace and I sat down and told her and, you know, she just kind of took a deep breath and sat back in the chair and, you know, she was like, the only prayer that I've consistently prayed my entire life is that I didn't outlive my boys. And she just started, you know, it was not even a, it's a, it's a very, I would think that only a mother can cry this way. It was not yeah. like an emotional outpouring. It was just a very heavy, like her yeah. shoulders sunk and her head sunk and just tears just slowly came down her cheeks. I mean, it was hard to watch this, you know, and I'm sitting yeah. there holding her hands yeah. and, I remember her little arthritic hands, you know, and her rings and stuff like that. Well, fast forward, you know, my papa, he had been, a, I, talk, I talked about it. He'd been a successful businessman uh, on the podcast yeah. last time. And like I said, through a series of, of miscalculations on business partners and, you know, the economy and things like that, they were just put in a position to remove themselves from ownership and um, kind of meant for them to go back to a normal career. So he went to truck driving. And he was a tanker driver and I remember going with him all the time and that was cool for me. But, you know, for him, I think there was a part of himself that just felt like everything had gone wrong, you know, but this was, this was a way out. And much like my granny having one prayer that she didn't outlive her boys, my, my papa was that, uh, he didn't want to die living, die in his truck. Like he wanted to be, mm. he never wanted to die on the road. Yep. Well, 
almost six weeks to the day after his brother passes from a heart attack farming, which was his dream. And, uh, you know, my papa somewhat living his nightmare, I guess. Um, uh, I'm, I'm inferring that he never complained, but sure. I'm inferring and, yeah. um, has a heart attack, hits a guardrail and, and ends up dying in his truck. So once again, I am tasked with going to my granny's house, sitting down and talking to her. Sure enough, I walk in the door. Oh, honey, I hope you don't bring bad news today. Last time you broke my heart, you know, and it's like, well, here yeah. we go again. And I said, granny, I just yeah. don't know how to tell you. I said, um, I said, my papa, you know, your son. I mean, I, I was just shook, you know. Yeah. So I get it out. <clears throat> but there was other circumstances uh, around that. The way that my Nana found out kind of the, the place that she was and the way that she was treated after finding out like nobody wanted to help her. Nobody was allowed to touch her because of like all the stupid laws. She kind of just collapsed in the floor yeah. and nobody was able to help her. So I, I'm here telling granny running to pick my Nana up, that kind of thing. Just a really terrible situation and having to drive into Eastern Kentucky into the coal country to, you know, cause he was a truck driver and we yep. go to this just old Eastern Kentucky funeral home and the guy comes in and it's just, it's a day at the office for him. You know, he comes back smoking yep. shirts undone, no air conditioning kind of thing. Like, was this him pulls the thing back and it just brought death, like, like right to the forefront, yeah. you know? Yeah. And again, you know, granny was like, uh, she was just distraught that she had prayed this prayer. Well, long story short, about four weeks after that, my granny passed away. And I think it was literally a broken heart. And one of the things amongst that prayer and amongst, you know, my grandfather's wishes to not die in that truck and then die in the truck. Yeah. Um, one of the last things I saw my granny do, um, maybe I won't say it just to, to protect her, but she, she just, I think she wrestled with her faith in the end, you know, mm -hmm. very much. And, um, I remember sitting one day and talking to her about Job and about the perseverance and the, the never ending faith that no matter how hard it, and she had a, I'm telling you, she had a brutally hard life. Mm -hmm. She lost her grand, her, she lost her mother in New Mexico when she was like five or six years old. They had to come back across the country in a wagon horse and wagon kind of deal stopped through the plains in the, the you know the dust bowl and all that and then came to tennessee yeah. to the coal mines so i mean her life was just riddled with hardship things that i won't say on here that are that are much harder than even that and yeah. um for her to to me and i think i've talked to you about her before as being this exemplary person from a mm -hmm. standpoint of faith as in I never heard her talk about God or the Bible or church. She did as much as I saw her live as a testament yep. to those things. Yep. And um, she was just an exceptional human being. And at the end, for her to wrestle with her faith and to somewhat die of a broken heart, you know, within a mm -hmm. month, six month or, you know, two or three month window. Sure. I saw three people that I knew very well, that I loved very much, that lived different lives at different times and all of them had wishes that they that they believed in and they they were afraid of i guess even they, they didn't want to die in the truck they didn't want to outlive their boys ray didn't he didn't want to die not ever having done anything with his farm you know those kind yeah. of things and yeah. they all 
worked so hard in that direction and got none of it, got absolutely none of it. And I think on the heels of those three deaths, that's when I lost it. Like I completely lost attachment to everything that I thought was real. I panicked, you know, I jumped into, um, I had an army recruiter at my house. I was talking to him because I was, I was really looking at all the things that I wanted to do and had never done and was afraid that I wasn't going to get them. So it was like, I have to do everything right now, right now. And so the army recruiter was first, um, I had some issues with my wrist. That's why I wasn't in the first time I had a surgery when I was younger. This was post nine 11. This was, I was 25 years old. They were much more lenient. So that process was rolling. I did a strongman competition. I was submitting articles to different, uh, muscle and fitness, things like that, trying to get writing. All of these things just exploded. And then Louis Simmons calls on the heels of that happens. A few months later, the economy collapses. I lose my job and here's Louis. So, that's what kind of catapulted me into this. You better live it right now because as much as you want something, nothing is guaranteed. So I I think I I spent a decade really into the last four or five years living terrified of all the things that I wanted to do that would never get done if I didn't take swift, positive action, you know, and good, bad, whatever the pain of, my mismanagement of those feelings led me through a decade of, of terrible mistakes and, and ups and downs and whatever. I mean, everything that a person can do wrong, I did it. And then in the last three or four years, there's been some positivity from it. So the reason I'm, I'm paralleling those two things is mm-hmm. I ran from all of that. I ran from those emotions. I ran from people sitting around telling the stories and, and talking about the good times and maybe healing for me, it was like, holy shit, get me away from this. I don't want any more death. I don't want any more sadness. I don't want this. And really what it did was perpetuate it. And, you know, I think looking at what we were talking about, kind of where this episode was supposed to go initially, and it didn't, but it it comes back full circle is there's different approaches to different things. And, And one of the things in my journaling was that I very much dealt with a lot of those feelings, emotions, Um, I'm a creative person, so I'm very idea driven, you know, create ideas, create ideas. But one of the things that I was failing to do was to convert those feelings and ideas into swift, positive action. And, you know, it's taken me years to get to that, just like it took me years to figure it out. And maybe you're better at this. And I think in our, in, you know, in the handling of peace, love and meat and some of the behind the scenes stuff, I do think you are better at the action side of things where, not saying you're you're less than I am, but my stronger point is on the creative side, the ideas, the generation of. We complement each for other sure. well in those exactly, areas. and that's yeah. and that's what I wanted to talk about as far as a journaling standpoint. Long, long yeah. way around is that your journal needs to be multifaceted, and this is something that I've only come to understand and accept myself because I thought it was just pour your heart out, pour your emotions out, dig through your past, dig through your mistakes, dig through your ups downs in between your relationships, your self image, all these things. And when you do all that and and you really get honest with it and you bleed for it, what, what now, what, what do you do now? Is it just this endless repetition of going back through your past and trying to create different angles on the same story? Maybe, but I think what I have started to do here in the last very, very recently is to have a process driven journaling standpoint. And it kicked off the heels of a guy 
I don't even remember. I mean, there's a, there's a dime a dozen of these guys telling you how to live your life and how to journal and all this other stuff. So this is one of the masses. And this guy is probably, you know, a decent person puts out the same info that you see everywhere, but this was good. And I, I do think that sometimes you find some gold and some trash. And, um, mm. this guy was talking about if you were to sit down and I've talked about it with weightlifting, like, or, or losing weight, like, do you just say you want to lose weight or do we, do we set realistic goals and numbers and, yep. and measurements? Yep. Same thing for me. Like, let's just use the terminology of buying a house. Well, I want to buy a house. You can live forever chasing that dream if you never actualize what you're chasing. So for me, more recently, whether it's business or my relationships or, you know, building a training program or anything like that, what is the purpose of my training program? Why am I writing this? How am I going to write this? Back my way into this process driven that I can that I can finish. But bigger than that, in a year's time, what do I want to accomplish? What do I want my life to look like differently than it does now? Um, who are the people that bring the most to my life? Who are people that are bringing weight to my life? And just start breaking your life down into one year, five year, 10 year. And, and this has all been advice that's out there forever. But so like so many things until I get there kind of organically on my own, like I kind of run out of, of motivation for the other, I don't pivot. As long as I can get more juice from the squeeze in one direction, I'm going to stay there unless I find a truly better direction. And I was getting these ideas. I was having these feelings about things, but I was really struggling to see all of them through. You know, it's kind of hard to juggle all these things if you don't know where to, what to do with all of that. Right. So yeah. I know you're really good at that. I know that I am just starting to, to break that down as something that I need to get better at. So yeah. what is your, what is your overall outlook on your journal? Is it multifaceted like that? Does it have different times and place that you do different things or is it just whatever comes out? Because I know for me, I get a lot of questions as if I am all knowing, all seeing, all powerful when it comes to journaling, yeah. just because I've had <laughs> right. success. Um, in right. one direction. And as I'm finding out with the process stuff, the building and the, the accumulating of ideas mm -hmm. into something more than just paper, um, that is where I have failed myself in a way by not doing more of that. So now that's my corrective process. What can I do with these yeah. ideas? So there's, there's a couple different paths I'll take here. So first is to just answer yes, like there are different facets or, or, or purposes for the different ways that I do flesh stuff out. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I guess the easiest way to do it would be just and, and the same thing. Like I've nothing either of us has done or talked about is basically us creating anything like nothing's new in terms of a lot of these processes or, you know, we've talked about with training and, and all of these other things like, to really be what is considered innovative in a lot of this stuff, you got to realize there's like a half a dozen people that really create much of anything. Mm -hmm. And it was done a long time ago. And a lot of Gary V and Jocko and David Goggins. That's it. <laughs> right. But it's crazy. I mean, like, so as a, as a quick side tangent and as it relates to fitness, right? Like there's, I don't know, in the last 25 years, maybe 10 people, who could actually say they've really created anything new yeah. in fitness. And even that a lot of times is in the creation of something new, but it's the 
repackaging of something really old to deliver it in a new way. Yeah. Right. And, or, and, and then they add in their own flair, right? Like, and there's different ways that like the instruction goes like, cause I think of Louie, I think of Greg, I think of Greg Glassman, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, there's a handful of these guys. Right. So as it relates back to the journaling, like these processes are all things that like I've learned and, and messed around with from learning from former business coaches I've had, or like other, other guys that are coaches. And, um, so the easiest way that I always do it is I'll look at like, I, I split it up into what's, what's considered like a goal setting mm-hmm. function of the journal. What's considered like, I just need to get some ideas flowing section of the journal. And then there's all, then there's like this third one. That's kind of like just more reflection. Type, yeah. Right. Like, and, and so all three of these have their different purposes and their different ways that you actually write the answers or write the stuff on the page. So for the goal setting thing, which is kind of like what you were alluding to, like, how do I go from, you know, I want this house and I want it in this amount of time. What do I actually need to do to make sure that's happening? And how do I make sure I'm hitting the milestones along the way? Right. Um, A lot of that is going to come down to simple habit forming Mm -hmm. techniques, right? Like making sure that I'm doing something, every day that's going to move me towards this. Well, how do I know what I need to do every day? So if we say we're looking at a, like, let's look at the home purchase goal and say it's like a three or five year or whatever. Let's just put three year on it just for the sake of the example. If I'm going to have this goal and I want to accomplish it in this amount of time, I also need to know how specific I'm going to get with this house, Mm -hmm. right? Because if I'm doing this as like, this is the house I want, what, how much does that cost? Right. Where is it? Like, where's that house? What does the house look like? Mm -hmm. You know, like these are questions that you need to have answered, especially if you're doing something like purchasing a house, you need to know what, you know, how much does this cost? That's an important one to figure out, right? Where is it located? So once you get all of these things figured out, now you have the, the Google maps destination, right? We've got that part plugged in. So now we got to figure out where, what route it's going to take us on to get us there. So I do this and then work backwards. So if it's a three-year goal, if I need to save up, say $50,000 for a down payment, mm-hmm. right? If I need to save up 50,000 in three years, where do I need to be in two years? Right. Where do I need to be in one year? Where do I need to be in six months? And then where do I need to be this month? Mm-hmm. Right? Like it seems simple. Like just start working backwards and make it till it's so granular. You're like, how much do I need to put away this week? Yeah. Because that makes it more real mm-hmm. and it makes it more attainable. Because you're like, how am I ever going to save $50,000? Right. Well, it's like, maybe you just save 100 bucks this week. Well, and, like maybe, you know, something like well, that. Well, you know, and I was looking at this too. I mean, you take a, you take a simple, um, you know, like a coffee at Starbucks or something. You get one yeah. of those a day. All right. Let's just call it $5. I mean, that's I, mm-hmm. the average is probably a little under that. But I think more people fall in that five plus. So there's 30 days in a month. Let's say you get one of those a day, 150 bucks. Okay. Over the course of a year, that's $1,800. Over the course of three years, that's $5,400. There's 10% of your needed 50 just by curbing your coffee habit at a drive-thru. Yes, there will be expense for making coffee at home, but it will be far less than the 5,400 over three years. Um, And then there's other things. And I think when you get down to that granular, granular level, that's what you start weighing out. Do I need this $50 pair of jeans or a hundred dollar right. pair of jeans or whatever it is? Um, 
or do I just kind of get more conservative with those kind of things? And you don't have a choice if you don't break it down to that level, because then you just, you remain compulsive and impulsive. And, um, for me, uh, kind of having those goals of, okay, I want the house, but the house is really only $50,000 away. How do I, you know, and it may be 40,000 or 30, 20, whatever it is for you, whatever the number is. Um, you just start looking at it in the mode of this is what I have to do to get what I want. And that's what it takes. Like, that's yeah. something else that's very important too that I think a lot of people are lost on is there's so much giving and hacking and shortcutting your way. When you start getting to the things that matter, when you start getting to the things that are, you know, bigger than just feeling, like when you when you really break it down to brass tacks, this is the way forward. You have to start looking at things as that's what it takes. Whether I like it, whether I hate it, whether I feel it's fair, whether I feel it's harder for me than the next person, if I want that $500,000 house, that's how much it's going to cost. That's what it's going to take. And this is what I'm going to have to do to get it. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I think too, when you get comfortable, you can start looking at yourself and like, man, that's a lot when I've already got so much. Well, that's true. And maybe that's another conversation that you need to have with yourself. Do I need more than what I have? But when you come to the point that you've made your mind up, if you're not taking a step every single day, just to get back to the plus one mentality, if you look at every 24 hours as I got closer or further from my goal, you never stay the same because now if, even if you stayed the same quote unquote, you now have less days forward to get done what you needed to get done because you lost one. So that is a minus one. There is no staying the same. You either move forward or you go backwards. And that's, that's a hard lesson for people. It is. And I think, uh, one of the other things as far as like techniques that's been helpful, we incorporate this into just like a lot of the goal setting protocols that we do is just a thing called, and it could be its own journal entry, honestly. Uh, it's just called the start, stop and continue Mm -hmm. list. And it's literally just, you write out three columns and you do the stop list first. And essentially, it's all of the things, all the habits that you know are, are bad habits mm-hmm. that you are going to focus on eliminating from your your daily life for, like, say, the next 90 days, mm-hmm. right? If you look at it in a 90-day block, like, these are all things that I'm going to stop doing. If it's I'm going to stop eating after 8 p.m., if it's I'm going to stop having coffee after 2 p.m., if it's I'm going to stop hitting the snooze button when my alarm goes off, like, these are the things that you're removing from your day. And the reason that you start with those as, as, as it makes sense to me, as I was taught and then seeing it actually play out is it's hard to add in new habits when you're full up with a bunch of bad ones, Yeah, you know? So you want to, you want to focus on like, what are the things I can remove to kind of clear some space so I can add one or two things in here and replace that to like make a positive change moving forward. Yeah. So after you do that, then you go now, what are the one to three things that are like actually going to move the needle? And make sure I hit those every single day. Yeah, I think it's huge. I mean, I think that's something, even when you said it, you know, I'm smart enough to realize it and rationalize it, but I don't like if you're making time for bad habits, you're removing time for good ones. Uh, That's that's just a very, very simple truth. And, you know, um, I am a complete whore for Coke zeros. I love them. Like that is especially, you know, obviously my body has changed. I'm getting leaner and leaner and leaner one of the assets of my transition has been Coke zeros, you know, not because I was drinking a ton of regular Coke, but the insanity of 
okay, I can't have the food that I want. At least I can have something that makes it better. And I'll tell you, I have a real problem eating food without carbonation. Like with it, really? I, I just don't enjoy it. Like, yeah. I, I don't like water with food. I wonder, I wonder what the, probably cause I grew like, up with what Pepsi the in a bottle. The stimulation thing probably, is there. Pepsi in a hole. I had Pepsi go. in a bottle. So there you, know, you go. just showing my roots. It's nature, not or it's uh, nurture, not nature. Yes. But um, <laughs> now I really have dedicated. Um, I got a big glass of water here. I did have, these are, these are kind of the cocktails, water and the Sprite zero, go. just trying to yep. keep the caffeine down. Cause beyond being a Coke zero whore, um, I am terrible for coffee as well. Like I, I, I'm a caffeinated yeah, person, um, but I don't know. I same. I don't know how much I. How healthy do you want to be? Like, how healthy do you actually want to be? Because it's like on like a practical. Level, yeah, I mean, mean, so I yeah. was watching this guy, I think um, about Troy Casey, certified health nut. He's a guy that I've watched. He he knows Rudy, and um, yeah, and. Yeah, they're pretty close. Uh, yeah, think, and they? respect to to yeah. those two guys. I mean, I think Troy has definitely figured out. I mean, the marketing stuff. That's what he is. He's from the business sector as a marketer. Um, and, and no hate. And he was like a. And he was like a. Yeah, he was a supermodel too. While, so right? he's got yeah. it. He's got it really hard. <laughs> um, but the thing about guys like that, and again, I'm not downplaying the guy. I just don't have a lot of respect for people who. The, the mace thing was what really made me say something was like when he put out the mace stuff is like, Oh, I'm going to do a mace clinic and I'm going to do all these mace things. Well, okay, but you're not really showing it. And that's where it gets into, you know, he's drinking fermented urine. He's suntanning his asshole. He's eating all this other stuff. That's like, how healthy do you think you're going to be? Or I, I kind of like the uh, Laird Hamilton approach, right? He said, I want to fuel this supercar with 93 octane or 110 racing fuel as often as I can. So I am going to feed it good quality food, high quality proteins, vegetables, and fruits. Yeah. But you know what? Somewhere along this beautiful highway of life, I'm going to find a gas station that's only got 87. And I don't want the car to blow up because it's never had anything real, you know? Exactly. And so his his whole thing is, his phrase is, don't be a liability. Yeah. For sure. And he, and he phrases that in that context where it's like, you can be the craziest, like fittest, strongest dude. But if someone offers you like a cracker and it shuts down your whole machine, that's not you being yes, optimized. Exactly. You know that you are a liability in that scenario too, because now you can't have anything one ounce out of the scope of your completely optimized life yeah. without it destroying you for a day and a half. Well, and, and beyond that too, like, that was one of the big things for me. Okay. So I want to, like, I love food. I love good food. And here's the, here's the thing about it all. And I've actually been writing some of this down, not hyper, hyper detailed, you know, calories or whatever. I've had, I've had alcohol every single week that I've been on this six month kind of transition, not to excessive drunkenness, but like it has been a consistent staple. I've had cheeseburgers. I have had pizza. I have had all the foods that I enjoy, but I started changing my, my philosophy around this thing. One, I'm not trying to stand on a stage, right? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be a perfectly sculpted physique for judgment. I'm trying to be a functional physique for use. So I looked at my week. I looked at the somewhat the breakdown of the caloric week instead of the caloric day. 
And I know that if I bust my ass Monday through Friday and I do all the, the jujitsu, I do my training sessions as intently as I can. I eat basically protein and fat for those days. When it comes Friday night, Saturday, and into Sunday, or just Saturday, Sunday, because I have backlogged four to five days of nearly perfect execution, I have an overstorage of calories for two days. So yep. is that a bourbon? Sure. Is that some some beers? Sure. Is that pizza or, or burger or is it pasta or whatever? Yes. Now, am I getting where I'm going as quickly as someone who is day-to-day like on it? No. But what happens right after a 16 weeks cycle of a diet for a bodybuilder right after the show, what do they go to? They go to the cheat meal Just boxes, of Oreos, Oreos and, and pizzas and yeah. burgers. And then it goes into a 16 week phase of we're going to get big again and we're going to get fat and sloppy. This is that process. Just saying, no, I'm going to live a baseline all the way through for improvement. If that's yeah. a third of a pound a week or a half pound a week, Every single week I'm moving the needle forward. And for me, that was such a break of freedom for me to think, okay, I can maybe we'll call it over diet three or four days in a row, keep my calories super, super low, but I'm saturating those calories at the end of the week. And guess what? For 48 to 72 hours after that carb, you know, calorie and and explosion, your body is still processing those things out and utilizing those things out through glycogen storage protein synthesis, things like that. So it's not like I'm really missing the nutrients or the macros. I am just structuring them in a week long basis rather than a day to day. And it's, it's just changed everything. So for these people that are like, I've got to get up and ice bath, I've got to do my sauna, I've got to go to my training, I've got a journal, I've got to do this and this and this and this and this and this to your own detriment. How much time can you commit to being healthy? And then on top of being healthy, being functional in your life in a way that's not detrimental to your health, you know? Yeah. The, so to answer the question, like how healthy do you want to be? Honestly, Troy was one of the first people I thought of. And then you brought him up in your example, but then the other guy, well, it's actually both of them because they're both named Brian Johnson, which is hilarious, uh, with liver King. And then the other translucent vampire, rich Brian Johnson guy, uh, who it's the same person. You ever seen him in the same room? Puts vials of his son's blood yeah. in his system every day. Like that is, first of all, that's super weird. Yeah. But uh, he, his whole thing is like he spends $2 million a year on his health. Right. Right. And and I think of the other, and uh, Asprey is the other one. Bulletproof, Dave mm-hmm. Asprey. And uh, both of those guys, the, the, the vampire Brian Johnson, not Liver King Brian Johnson, uh, him and Asprey, their whole thing is like, I want to live to be 200 years old, right? So I'm going to spend all the money I can to do all the longevity things now. And both of them now like look terrible. Yeah. Like now yeah. they do. Like they don't look healthy. They look like vampires, yeah. right? And it's not a, a healthy thing. And so you look at, and then you hear how many, how many, and I'm sure in the South there's, there's all kinds of these people where it's like they're 106 and they smoke get the two packs of cigarettes out? a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they're 106 and they do nothing but drink and smoke. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? And, but they're happy. Yeah. 
right? Like they have family, they eat, they eat good food, they have some bad habits, but it's like, how much is that clearly affecting anything? Right. right? And if that's bringing stress levels down, because I think that honestly is going to play more of a fact, like happiness and stress levels are going to play more of a factor in longevity, Mm -hmm. like maybe not immediate physical strength or body level, body fat percentage to a a crazy degree. But like, if you want to live a long, happy life, like focus on being as surrounded by good relationships and stress-free as you can. Like, and that's, which is funny, even thinking about it, people that are that old now, the times that they've lived through in their life, like you were talking about, like your great grandma, like the things that just that general generation live through is nuts yeah. and the fact that there are people that are over a hundred that are just like yeah i'll smoke you know another pack here before lunch and it's like yeah. <laughs> what is the deal yeah. and so it's crazy when you think about like when i think about the question how healthy do i want to be it's i my answer is more to do with what do i want to be able to do yeah And that will, and like, and, and if that's my limit on what I'd be able to do, that tells me like, well, how much do I need to train or how much do I need to focus on this? If, if this is what I'm going to do, if I'm going to do more than that, like if I want to go for a a block and it's like, Hey, I want to try and for whatever reason, I'm going to try and do a hundred mile race. It's like, well, I'm going to, I got to change a lot of stuff up and I got to focus a lot more on this for whatever time period this is going to be. Right. But if I'm talking about like, if I'm going to be the OG, grandpa that's 85 and is still running around and lifting weights and you know whatever that looks like at that that age uh but is healthy and can move and can do stuff like that dictates what i do now too it's not like i'm gonna push that off until i'm 70 it was like well i destroyed my body for 40 years crushing it trying to do all these things and now i'm i can't i'm broken i can't move doing all this kind of stuff and now now i'm gonna do all this healthy longevity stuff now. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So it's like, if I'm looking in the decades ahead and that's the focus, how does that dictate what I do now? Well, I think that, I think that's a a really good way to put it is what do I expect and hope to be able to do that will definitely dictate what you aim towards. Um, One of the things that, and it's funny that you specified the South, you know, cause I'll just, utilize the the conversation that that is a lot of our, I know the Midwest too, but you get that farm country, you know, that Southern mm-hmm. mentality. And there was a guy named uh, Mason Rodas and he was a farmer that. Of course. And, See, there's no names like that in Idaho. Yeah. Like nobody's named Mason. Rodas. Yeah. Well, he had two <laughs> twin boys that lo- that wrestled on a local circuit named Larry and Gary Rodas. And uh, Gary had a glass eye and when we would set tobacco, Mason would set like in, I mean, most people go slow so you don't miss any and you don't have to waste time going back. He was like in road gear. I mean, it was just as fast as you could go. Mm-hmm. And we had a four person setter and the boys had to sit on the opposite end of each other. Cause they would throw, they would punch each other in the middle. Like these are 40 year old men and they would punch <laughs> each other and fight in the middle or they would throw tobacco plants at each other like if they were one person mm-hmm. apart. So they had to be on the ends. But anyway, Mason always said, you know why people live better and longer in the South is because whatever they put in their body, they work it out the next day. You know, and like he was talking about how if you sit trash and just let it rot, it's going to stink. But if you take it out in the field and you, you take a rake and you put it in the dirt and you kind of compost it, he's like, 
yeah, it's going to smell, but it's going to do something good. And there it just sits and rots on itself. And he was saying, whatever you put in your body today, whether it's biscuits and gravy or alcohol at night, he was like, if you work hard tomorrow, it ain't going to penalize you. And that, I mean, he was like 75 sitting on a tractor, setting tobacco, kicking our asses every day, you know, and he lived on another 10, 10, 12 years after that. And I mean, I wouldn't classify him as a big drinker or smoker, but he did both, you know, and he ate right everything that we ate i mean we ate like kings big breakfast sack lunch and then potluck dinners every single night country cook and i was lean as hell i mean you worked your dick off the day the day that you were out in the field from sun up till sundown when that food truck came and the food truck was the wives you know what i mean they'd pull up in an astro van exactly full of food Mm -hmm. but um that's that's what i wrestle with a lot man is like you know, I'm, I'm living pretty good. Like life's going all right. Body's going pretty good direction for all it's been through. I don't know how much I want to downregulate the fun in my life to adhere yeah. to some version of like, is like how much benefit am I going to wake up every morning and feel if I tan my asshole? You know what I mean? Like how much better am I? Like what's the percentage difference? Yeah. How much better is my archery going to be or my jujitsu going to be? Because I uh, I drank my own fermented piss. You know what I mean? Like, what the hell? At what point do you really start asking how stupid is this shit, and what a waste of time is this shit? It's it's the it's the whole uh, it's the whole concept of, and honestly, I blame on it for it because it's their like slogan, but like human optimization. Yeah. Right. Like that's if if that's the approach, it's like I'm going to spend 300 bucks a month on all these supplements I've got. Like, you know, and, and again, if you do it, whatever. But that like that's not the conversation we're having with most people. Yeah. Right. It's because most people have other things to do in their life than focus every second of their life on living one year longer. Well, but why do know? people do that? Like, why will people I mean, I know the answer. I'm, at, I'm answering yeah. it as I ask you, but like they will spend. $200 a month on supplements, but cannot adhere to a, a nutrition protocol at all. You know, right. it's like, mm-hmm. it's the easy fix outlet. It's the, the feeling of I'm doing something maybe, I don't know, but yeah, I, I certainly don't understand that. And then I don't understand the other end of the spectrum either, where you're trying to do everything. Like, yeah. At what point do you just understand how awesome the body is and be like, this is healthy enough. Like this is good enough. Yeah. Well, and then you, I mean, like the examples that you, that you had given already where you see the guys that I, and I saw a bunch of them this last weekend of all the old farmers that are still doing Mm -hmm. it every day. And like, you know, they, they don't look like they're, you know, super jacked or anything like that, but they're, you know, somewhat lean for being in their seventies or a million. And they're, that's who they are. That's the yeah, prime, exactly. that's the prime body type. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it makes me, and it made me think too, when you were talking about like your, the big uh, potluck dinners and country cooks. So uh, the guy who we were down to, to, to celebrate this last weekend, his name was Denny. And uh, he used to do these things for us for uh, any kind of like big event. Uh, they called him his milk can meals. Mm-hmm. And he would literally take like the big steel, milk cans Mm -hmm. like i don't know how many gallons they are i mean like the ones that are like waist high right and he had uh he would pour everything into this thing like he would do 
sausage. It was kind of like, you know, a, a, a Idaho version of a crab. Sure, oil, sure. Basically, yeah. you know, and put all of this stuff in there, do cabbage and potatoes and sausage and uh, like all these seasonings, do all this stuff and just set that bad boy on a campfire for like six yeah. hours and basically just let it go. And then he, when he was done, take off the cap and he'd have two of like the super long igloo coolers and he'd literally just dump the whole thing in like a trough and then everybody would just come through and so he would do that during baseball tournaments oh yeah uh when we would travel for baseball and he would he would do that while everybody was out playing and make sure it was going and then we come back he'd have it all like troughed up in the thing so we get done with our game in 140 degree weather and we played five of them that day like we just come and yep. scoop it all on up and so i but it made me think too like the uh what you said mason's kind of philosophy was was essentially work it off the next day how how good advice that is yeah. and how how bad that particular piece of advice gets spoken of and utilized in a lot of modern fitness yeah, yeah. context. Yep. You know what I mean? It's like, Oh, I had three M and M's. I got to go run a mile. Yeah. Like that's the opposite yeah. kind of, of what we're talking about. Yeah. Here. Well, you put it in simple terms of like a car. I mean, you put, you yeah. put some fuel in it. That's got bad gas. What is your, what is your option? You can let it sit there with the bad gas in it, or you can drive it, put good gas in it, drive it, put good gas yeah. in it, drive it, put good gas in it until the good gas eventually overcomes the bad and you run it out. And that's the same thing. Like Mm -hmm. you can run on bad gas forever. There's a place right over here that used to put water in their gas for a hundred years, but it was the cheapest in town. And and when you're scraping change out of your cup, your cup holder to get gas, that's where you went. I had a 86 S 10 that ran on that better than it did on 87, (laughs) you know? So you kind of get used to what you, you put into your body. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, not saying that the people of the South are healthy, but I think the Southern diet was impacted by the demand. You know, you didn't, you didn't have this calorie dense breakfast just because it was the smartest thing to do. I mean, think about the rations that people uh, stuck to back in the 18, like meat. There's a song right now. um, I can't think of it, but it's like, she ain't had meat in years, but she still tends the table. And it's talking about a woman (laughs) in the, in the coal mines where she would she would just live off of cooking bread different ways and mixing it with vegetables, you know, and like trying to make these stews and, and thicken it with bread so that it was hearty enough for these coal miners, you know. Mm-hmm. So it didn't come because there was excess. It came because it was the demand. And then right. as things got easier, as tractors became more prominent than feet and horses, as combines became more prominent than size and rakes, you know, these things started to take the place of the hard work, but the meals didn't change. Now, yeah, the family, you get you get some some tubby tubbies, but usually the person that's out <laughs> in the field, they don't they don't tend to always reflect that as commonly as the rest of the family. Right. So I think, you know, right. it's a cause and effect deal there. I do think that I saw it firsthand. I was, you know, fourteen to twenty when I was working on the farm heavy, and those were my leanest, strongest most well-fed calorically days of my life, probably on par with some of my heaviest powerlifting days. And I was 185 to 215 pounds, you know, so shredded Mm -hmm. eating biscuits and gravy and sausage every day. Well, it's so funny because people will look at that example and they'll say, Oh, it's just because you were young. You could eat whatever you want. Yeah. Right. Like there's, I mean, there's maybe a little bit of truth to that. Right. Uh, But also people just stop 
doing stuff as they get like every year they do less and less as they get older. So it's not that you couldn't, right? but you move for now, you, now you move for 40 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas before you were literally on your feet being active and sweating for six hours. Oh, easily. Or Easily, more, yeah, or more, right? And so, and and the perfect example of that is the guys that have those, you know, super active, physically demanding jobs stay pretty lean yeah. year round for the most part. And that's it. So it has nothing to do with it's like, oh, I'm 30, show me a fat roof. My metabolism's gone. Exactly. <laughs> Be a mistake to hire a fat yeah, roof, fat bricklayer, just from a structural integrity standpoint. I love the, the I love the twenty eight year old bricklayer that looks like he's seventy three. And he smokes you know, like a carton of Camel <laughs> yeah. non filters every two days. Yes, you know? dude, I saw a video, uh, maybe not even a week ago, and it was I watched it maybe thirty times, and I can't remember. Maybe you shared it. I don't remember if that was where I saw it, but it was a guy that was uh, a drywall guy, mm-hmm. and just showing the level of skill that these guys truly have. Like he's got the he's got the spackle and. Stuff, and he's filling in the cracks along two pieces of drywall and the way that he's literally just like swiping it across. I mean, he, he covers a whole wall in the span of like a 40 second. Video. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just smooth and perfect. And his, his motion is like fluid and flawless. Like, I mean, like he could do it with his eyes closed. And I just was entranced watching that video. I probably watched it five or six times in a row. Like this is, so I love awesome those skill. Like somebody, I love those that. trade skill type videos, especially like when they're a minute long, there's a kid, He's got to be in his early 20s. I don't know where he's from. It was one of those deals. I was watching something, and it was the next one that rolled up, and I've never been able to find him again. But he's a young uh, stonemason, and it was showing him. I'm, I follow oh, him. Really? I'll send okay. you the thing. So yes. he was like, you yes. know, he was chiseling these things. And, I mean, these things were, like, immaculately precise. Think um, not as big a scale, but, like, Egyptian stone cutting to get that perfect, perfect angle. And he's just sitting here with a hammer and a chisel. And it's like, it's, it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And then there's another guy that I follow. He does the sand art. Have you seen it? The Japanese guy, it's like a form of meditation that they do there. Yes. And it draws these circles and it, it all depends on the fluidity of your motion and what you create in the sand with these little sticks that drag some of that stuff. Like, it is such a it is such an escape from all the other bullshit because it's it's actually something valuable, um, you know. It's it just impressive to me that in a world where we are constantly forgetting the tradesmen, that there are people out there that are this level of good, like this level of skill. And not only that, but with the stone with the stonemason mm-hmm. guy. In, in particular, because the stuff he does is incredible. But you look at what he even does, and he's young. I think he's literally like 21 or 22 years old. Like, he's super young. Uh, and he'll probably be unbelievable, giving him another 20 years doing this. Like, just can't even fathom the level of ability that he has. But then you look at what was done like 500 years mm-hmm. ago with the, with how good they were then. And it's one of those things, like you said, where you're like, how does nobody know how to do it like this anymore? Right. Like why, like, is that literally just a lost art? Mm-hmm. Literally? Like, can nobody actually do it like this anymore? And I was, I was reading a couple of um, comments and then like, you know, branched off articles um, about those kind of things. And one of the big things is a lot of those guys back then started doing apprenticeships when they were like 11 mm-hmm. years old. 
with those guys. And that's literally, it's like, this is what I do. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. By the time they're 20, 25 years old, they've been doing it for 15 yeah. years. I know, I know and farriers that way around here. Yes. Farriers are. Yeah. So example. there's a guy, um, his last name's Ballard and they all work horses. And that's what he would do is he would just hire these, these, you know, 12, 13 year old boys for summer work. But when he would find somebody that was really good, like, you know, they were dedicated, they, they grasped it. He'd be like, look, you can do this job forever. The demand is always going to be in the state of Kentucky. It's the horse capital of the world. Um, you know, this is a great job. You can make a good living. It's hard, blah, blah, blah. But I know guys that started with him at 12 and 13 and they're 40 and they've been doing it 25 years, you know, um, it's, it's crazy to see, but that's how it was. That's how it was mandated because the boys were expected at, you know, at any time father could be called away. Father could die. These boys, you know, and even in cases, some girls were expected to know because the, the operation of the family could not stop, you know, and that's the difference now is like, there's so many replacements. There's so many fill-ins. There's so many options. If, if we, to kind of bring this full circle back to death, I don't think we value people as much as we used to because we don't need them as much as we used to. We don't need their yeah. skill set as much as we used to. We don't need their friendship and leadership as much as we used to because there's always a replacement. You know, there's always somebody or something or some avenue to replace what a person can do for your life except the things that they were to your life. And I think that in a modern era where it's very easy to get trapped in the idea of, okay, they're gone. I've got to keep going. Eh, I don't know if that's always the best way. Sometimes that reflection uh, may be better than I did it, you know, where it becomes a positive much sooner. But I think death can be a beautiful thing. It can be a learning thing. It can be a teaching tool. Um, but man, I, I certainly think that there's there's something lost when we stop valuing the, the personal gifts that people possess, you know, whether it's a skill, whether it's a, the way they make you laugh, whether it's a way they make you cry, the way they make you think, um, there's something valuable to that. And I don't know what that means, but other than there's so many amazing people still in this world that I think if we can, just slowly impact and start shining light on those things, on those people celebrating the small victories in our lives, celebrating the the small moments with people in our lives. That is the the first step to a better life, you know, is the appreciation factor for what you have, the appreciation factor for what you've lost and the hope and wonder for what you'll get. Like that to me is when life is good. That's a pretty good mic drop moment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all righty <laughs> we'll i think we, we wrap it up there um, oh just some sweet, house man. cleaning uh we'll do the drawing do on friday i'll probably put up a ah, yes. just a quick announcement about that on thursday thank everyone that signed up for that please if yeah. you haven't do so again not to beat a dead horse but this is going to be a way to communicate more clearly a little bit different forms than instagram will allow and definitely don't want to make enemies of people because of an email list. You know, don't want, I don't want to waste my time writing crap that I don't care about. Ross doesn't want to waste his, and I don't want to waste yours. So hopefully anything you get in that email, you find beneficial, you find cool. There'll be some music suggestions. There'll be some book suggestions. There'll be people like we just talked about different Instagram pages that we think are cool to follow and just show people that are doing cool things. So maybe you can learn something. 
True that, my friend. All right, bro. We'll catch you guys next Appreciate week. Appreciate you all.